A quick note on this episode, what you're about to hear is part one of our conversation with Emily McCarty, where we talk about the problem of evil and suffering. In part two, we get more into the existence of God, evidence for belief, and topics we've discussed previously on this podcast. So if you enjoy part one, stay tuned for part two. And now we bring you Emily McCarty. How did we get connected? I guess it was after we had interviewed Rachel, she had said, hey, yeah, I know this person who you guys need to talk to. Yes. And then we got connected that way. Do you remember the context? Something about Aquinas and possibly Hume. And Rachel was like, this is like more your area than mine. Like you might be able to like have some more insight into the the questions they were like asking me. And here you are. And I don't remember the questions. (laughs) (laughs) We'll figure it out. Okay. So Emily McCarty, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Just give us a quick, who are you? What are you doing? What are you up to? Sure. Um, So I am a graduate student currently at St. Louis University. I am working on my dissertation in philosophy of religion, specifically the problem of evil. So while I'm trying to write basically a book, um, I'm also teaching at SLU and just kind of enjoying interacting with the undergraduate students there. So that's kind of what I've been up to the past five years. And what brought you to specifically to the problem of evil? Is that something you've always been interested in? Um, How do I want to put this? So I have dealt with a lot of suffering in my life. And I've had some people ask me, like, are you like interested in this problem? Because it's like affected you so personally. And actually, that was not what got me into it. Surprisingly, what got me into it was like, I was sitting in a class and the professor was just talking about this particular problem, the problem of evil. And I was like, that problem is like the one philosophical problem that makes like very clean sense to me. The issues seem to be like, you know, straightforward. And it was just, it was interesting. So that's kind of what got me into it. And then, yeah, just also seeing these these connections between, all right, what we think is like true about God or what reality is like has these implications for these issues that are like very practical and personal. So I think for me, the interest is like, we're going to be really theoretical and talking about something over here, and then we're going to apply it to something immensely practical. So the two worlds are going to, they collide in this problem in a really interesting way for me. So that's what got me interested in the problem of evil. Is there some aspect of it? And, you know, obviously we're going to get into what is this and get sort of into the weeds, but is there a certain part of it that you, like an unanswered question that you have a handle on, like, I want to try to answer this part of it, or is it more just sort of the issue in general? I think I'm interested more in, right now, I'm just watching some philosophers of religion answer questions related to the problem of evil in ways that I find very strange. And so I'm trying to locate, well, what's causing the strangeness? And the strangeness is how they're thinking about or theorizing about God's nature or God's being. And for me, I'm like, huh, that's an interesting connection that I hadn't seen before. So that's kind of, it's what I'm working on in my dissertation. And that's kind of the interesting bit for me is like uh, the problem of evil, especially, and just philosophy of religion in general, you get to bring in these really like broader philosophical questions and you get to like play around with a very tangible issue. And in playing around uh, or just like thinking about this tangible issue, you get to see, oh, like this illuminates this other question or this other aspect that I hadn't thought of. So thinking about how does God's nature or what God is like affect the ways that he interacts with human persons, like 
how do we make sense of this? Um, how does it interact with if you think God exists? Does he relate to human persons if he's this way or has this attribute? So that's kind of what I'm working on. I'm thinking more about these theoretical, like what's your starting point when you start thinking about this intensely practical question? And how are those starting points for you affecting your response to this really deep, just pressing problem in our world? So that's kind of what interests me. Also, like in your dissertation, you're focused more on modern philosophy's approach to the problem of suffering as opposed to like the old school stuff. I'm actually doing best of both worlds. So I, the view that I'm trying to address is a very, you know, modern, current view. And I'm using like Aquinas, who's like very deeply entrenched philosopher. So I'm kind of bringing these both of these worlds together and seeing like how do they communicate and part of this modern view is like this person is also trying to use Aquinas as well and so I'm thinking about all right this interpretation that you're offering how true is it and then taking a look at Aquinas himself how does he kind of give us his own framework for thinking about this question of God's nature and then how that bears on our solution to the problem of evil. Could you kind of help us just sort of put the problem on the table as best we can, just articulate the problem of suffering, and then sort of talk us through how you think about it, what Aquinas has to say about it, whatever, uh, walk us into the territory and kind of help us traverse it a bit, I suppose. Gotcha. Okay. So problem of evil is, I think of it more as like, you can think about it like cognitive dissonance, right? So we get this picture and for our purposes, I mean, you could think about this as like a theistic problem, right? Especially for the Abrahamic traditions, right? So Muslims, Jews, Christians, they're all going to face this problem because they make these claims about what God's nature is like, right? So God is all loving, he is all powerful, and he's all knowing, right? So let's you know, think about this in terms of like Epictetus, right? So if God is all powerful and evil exists, he should be able to do something about it. If God's all-knowing, he knows where all the instances are, right? So, he, you know, it's like nothing is escaping his notice. And if God's all good, it seems like, yeah, he's going to want to get rid of the suffering. And so then I like how Epictetus is just like at the end of that triad, he's like, like, what's evil doing? Like, why does evil exist, right? So it seems like given the attributes of God, especially those three attributes, evil shouldn't be a thing. And so then you get two problems of evil, we could call them. The first is the logical problem of evil, right? So you've got like J.L. Mackey, and he says, look, if you take these propositions, God is good, God's loving, uh, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, and you take them to mean, you know, if God's all-loving, he would want to get rid of evil wherever he finds it. Um, if God's all-knowing, he knows where all the instances of evil are. And if you take those those three propositions about what God's nature is like, and you add the proposition that evil exists, we have a contradiction. And so if you take a look at those, like all four of those statements, those are what theists claim are true, right? So no one is going to deny that evil or suffering exists, right? Like you'd have to be like some sort of like obtuse about the way that the world is to like say, you know, evil or suffering doesn't exist, right? So everyone's going to accept that proposition, but then you have to start thinking about, all right, what about the attributes of God? Well, all three Abrahamic traditions accept God's loving, God's all-powerful, God's all-knowing, right? So Mackey says, look, there's a logical contradiction here. Belief in God is just, it's like logically inconsistent. You're irrational for believing in God. So that's the logical problem of evil. 
And then you've got the evidential problem of evil. And so instead of saying like, look, belief in God is irrational, you say something like, given the evidence of suffering that exists in the world, like God's existence is improbable, right? And so it seems that the atheist is justified in claiming that there is, you know, that God doesn't exist. Evidence seems to be on his side. So I'm thinking here of uh, William Rowe and his formulation of the evidential problem of evil, right? So he gives us these two cases. The first case is the suffering of Bambi in the woods. All right, so remember, you know, our triad, God is all-powerful, he's all-loving, he's all-knowing. And so another proposition, you know, we might think about And a lot of theists are going to kind of assert to like reformulate the problem or say, hey, this is what we take God's love to mean. If God permits suffering, he permits it because there's some kind of good that comes out of that suffering. And so Roe presents the case of Bambi in the woods. And so this fawn is caught in a forest fire. The fawn gets burned and suffers for hours in agonizing pain. And so Roe asks, well, what redeeming good, what benefit comes from that suffering, right? It doesn't benefit the fawn at all, right? It doesn't contribute to her flourishing or, in fact, you know, it denigrates her flourishing. Her last hours are in pain, right? The death or the suffering of the fawn is not somehow contributing to this, like, greater global good. So then it's like, well, okay, like, it seems like this suffering, this evil is pointless. And so if God exists, there shouldn't be pointless evil. So what's interesting about Rose's argument, just in terms of the timeline of the discussion of the problem of evil, Plantinga comes along and shows that given Mackey's argument, we might think that God does have what's called sufficient, like morally sufficient reasons for permitting suffering. So, okay, you've got your set of supposedly inconsistent propositions. We are going to add another proposition to it. That God's moral goodness means that Let's identify some probable reason that God might have for permitting suffering. Plantinga says that free will is the good um, that justifies God's permission of evils in the world. So for humans to be able to choose good, like because that thing is good, they've also got to be able to choose evil. And so that's the risk that God takes. That's the good that God sees as coming into the world. Is at least in terms of the literature, most philosophers, okay, they find this convincing. Because once you add that proposition into that set and consistent set, it makes it consistent. It's like, okay, if this is God's morally sufficient reason, we might see how evil could be consistent with God's goodness. That's a hard pill to swallow if you're like a parent watching your kid die of a brain tumor or something, though. Yeah, there are a couple different issues with it, which is why I think Roe has that kind of insight, and that's why he brings things over to pointless evils, right? Mm -hmm. Is that it seems like, all right, you know, okay, God could have morally sufficient reasons for allowing us to have freedom, right? And that might be, it might be true that at least in terms of like giving us free will and our the possibility that we could choose evil, that there's some kind of concomitant good that might come out of that. And in terms of him allowing, the, the free will justifies it. Is it as like an ongoing free will? Or is it more that from a biblical perspective, Adam was free to choose in the garden. Oh, I see. He chose poorly this ushered sin and death and misery into the world. The genie got let out of the bottle and it can't go back in. That's the free will? Or it's more like, no, he continues to allow it because we continue to have free will. The former is the approach I feel like we grew up with in the church, at CHS, 
it was always um, that's the answer to the problem of suffering is original sin happened. That's why evil is here. End of story. Gotcha. I think you would say both. So I think in answer to like your objection about watching your kid die of cancer, Plantinga would respond, part of that suffering was the original, like once, you know, we fell, sin entered the world and you get natural evils, right? And so cancer or Mm -hmm. any kind of illness would be um, attributed to like the original fall, Hurricanes and all the thrown in there. Yeah, all that stuff. But I think also there is this, because God continues to allow us to have free will, he doesn't like step in every time a choice that we make would have some bad consequence. You know, he's still permitting evil for the sake of, you know, the exercise of mm-hmm. our free will, which is And so good. if there's some needless suffering that doesn't really have any benefit, that's just sort of a natural consequence of of allowing that to happen. So I'm thinking... Um, I don't know how Plantinga would respond to that, but I think in terms of Roe's argument, if we can like hone in on that morally sufficient reason for just a second, the strength of that claim is that there can be no evil, like none, zero, that escapes the morally sufficient reason, right? So if there's even one evil that is not connected to some greater good or to some benefit, either for the sufferer herself or for the global good, then God is not good. And we have evidence that God does not exist, right? So it's like a violation of the actual definition of God's goodness if we have at least one instance of a pointless evil. I don't know if this is clicking with me. I feel I feel like the, the fall occurred and that was our bad, right? Mm-hmm. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> so, so any subsequent goodness that that um enters the world via Yahweh it's kind of like he didn't ha- like we chose to disobey we are experiencing the consequences of our conscious choice but he still loves us and is still intervening regardless of that like so he didn't have to do that so how do you see that like connecting up to the problem of evil like how would that help our conundrum about pointless evils Oh, I don't think it helps at all. <laughs> I'm just saying that's a, like like I don't even know if I'm a decade out from being a non-believer. So I mean, I, I still mm-hmm. kind of I recall this the the uh, worldview architecture that I kind of had regarding mm-hmm. this whole issue. So I was kind of like, it was our bad. It's not his bad. Yeah, we made the decision. So it's almost like there is no problem of evil. It's uh, not. It's not his responsibility to fix everything that we screwed up. So it's not even really on him to. It's our bad, not Yeah, because that that's kind of the heart of the, the problem, right, is that it seems like God's kind of absconded when it comes to his moral responsibility. And so then, you know, you're trying to either make sense of God's goodness, like what does it actually mean? Do we need to redefine it? Does it look like human goodness? Or is it some kind of other, you know, version? Or does it look like human goodness in the way that it works out just looks different than what we might have expected it to? So I think you're right to kind of, all right, focus, like, the heart of the problem is about, like, God's obligation to us. Like, evil exists, and given what we know about God and what we think goodness is, there's this expectation that there shouldn't be something like suffering. There shouldn't be something like evil. So I think that that is really where the, the locus, am I going to say something, it might not be as uh, philosophically pointed as what the literature would say, but I think the heart of the question is around God's responsibility, God's obligation, 
in light of evil? Is he obligated to get rid of every instance of suffering? Is he obligated to turn every evil that happens to the good of the sufferer? So if you buy into the morally sufficient reasons picture of things, then yes, God is obligated for every instance of evil. If there are no pointless evils, if that's what God's goodness means, that there is no suffering that he doesn't redeem, then there cannot be any evil that is not hooked up to somehow connected to a redeeming good or a good that outweighs that evil. Or There's a couple different ways of putting it, but the, basically God doesn't just throw his hands up in the air and say, I'm done. There's something purposive. So is the get out of jail free card then... Because, I mean, clearly, if you just look on a practical level, by any reasonable definition, there's plenty of seemingly useless, unredemptive suffering in the world. So the get-out-of-jail-free card is, but he's going to redeem it later, so everything's okay. That's actually one of the ways. I don't know if it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. So there are some who will say... So there's two kind of levels of thinking about this morally sufficient reason question. So one of them is like, yes, eventually all of the evils will be redeemed. And so you appeal to an afterlife to deal with cases where it seems like the suffering cuts off someone's flourishing. So I do want to give uh, give warning before I give this example. Uh, Rose's second example can be a little bit of a trigger because um, so, it does deal with rape. So just for any listeners who are out there, um, doesn't go into any details, but just I want them to be aware of that. But Rose's second case is, uh, it's called the Jessica Lunsford case. So it's the story of a little girl. Her mother was dating a man and the little girl got up in the middle of the night, I guess, to get a drink of water or something. And the her mom's boyfriend raped and murdered her. And so the question becomes, well, what is the good that comes from that suffering? Does it benefit those who are sur- the survivors? Like, who's benefited here? And it doesn't look like Jessica's benefited at all. Her flourishing is totally cut off. Her last moments are full of very dark suffering. So then, you know, if we're really going to make this problem pointed, and I think this is kind of the correct way to make the problem pointed, God's morally sufficient reasons for allowing suffering have to redeem that suffering for the sufferer herself. So it's not just that God makes the world good in the abstract, but he makes the world good for the person who's actually doing the suffering. And so Roe kind of latches onto this point and says, well, if we take the Jessica Lunsford case, uh, things don't look good, you know, for the theist. And the, and the suffering has to be redeemed in this world, in this life. Uh-huh. You, don't, you, don't have, it, yeah. you don't have the eternity... Right. So the way that Roe, I mean, at least like to keep the the problem a little bit cleaner, he would say something like, well, it's got to be redeemed for the sufferer herself. And so you have responses that go something like, well, maybe there's some sort of like redemption that happens in the afterlife because that person has a kind of unique union with God. So there's a sense in which, yes, people are going to appeal to the afterlife. Is there a scriptural basis for that? I think most would appeal to Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. But then you have questions of like, well, what about those who don't love God? Does God still even, you know, work yeah, I was gonna evil ask, for their good? Yeah. Ask that. So if you're yeah. if you're already a believer who's suffering, then you're all, you've already got your ticket to heaven. So it's not like you're getting an extra, like, whatever. I guess you get an extra jewel in your crown or, or whatever that works. Yeah, weight of glory, something like that. Yeah, so I think... 
I, I think Christian theists would appeal to, you know, the Roman 828 consideration. I mean, um, that's that seems like a pretty big, just as I'm hearing that for the first time, like pretty clearly grasping at straws in desperation for anything they can, oh, well, that one, that one makes it okay. That's a pretty thin grab, I mean, to, yeah. take, to take that specific case and say, well, that, that all things work together. Well, that must cover that. Yeah, right. Because I think one of the things that I don't want to lose as I study this problem is the force of like what evil is, what suffering is, right? Because I think it's easy, you know, when you look at things in the abstract, you know, you look at like the Mackey planting a discussion. It's like, cool, we get this like logical kind of, so stitching together and, you know, you add this proposition and it makes a consistent set, right? Um, but you don't want to forget like, you know, the on the ground kind of suffering thing. And I think that's can be what's helpful about Roe's argument is he brings that element in of like, these are like really hard cases. And to be flippant or I want to be careful because I think there are there are well-meaning Christians who do... I don't want to say throw that around, but I think it's very quick. It seems like quick comfort to give someone, right? Whereas when someone's in the trenches, as it were, it's like that doesn't not even, very comforting. It just yeah, it just bounces off the top of your head, and it's like, how does that help me at all? I mean, I understand why they're doing that. It's in desperate times, you do desperate things. It's like there's a cognitive dissonance, and so your brain is just grabbing for anything it can latch onto. All things work together for good. Okay, so it must be okay, and that's how you comfort yourself from the suffering you're in or the Mm -hmm. suffering you're seeing around you. Well, if you're a Christian and you're experiencing suffering, particularly like a severe form of suffering, like watching your kid die in the hospital or something, you know, Hmm. God is good. He has a plan. And yet I'm experiencing this. And so there is whatever, everything that we're experiencing in the moment, our interpretation of those events is always informed by our most foundational axioms, always. sure these cases where it's like, it's really hard to make that connection just because it's so dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I want to go back to something you brought up, Andy, or just a question that you had had, you know, like, what's the scriptural support for it? Because I'm sitting here still kind of thinking. I mean, I think in the resurrection, you get this like, okay, here's the greatest illustration of how God turns evil and redeems it for good. So if you think about, okay, like, let's assume that... God, if he exists, his, um, just what he is, who he is, that's like of the highest, greatest value. And that's kind of the traditional, I mean, like long tradition of how theists think about God and like his value to us, right? And so imagine God becomes a human person and he comes to dwell on the earth. He heals people. He's bringing goodness into the world. He's like showing up the religious leaders who are you know, leading people astray who are trying to find God with all of their being and the religious leaders are standing in their way. So God's like coming to earth, bringing you know goodness into the world. And he didn't have to do that because we chose to uh, reject him and he did right. it anyways. So, so there's a, a kind of kindness there. Yes. And then you know he brings all those good things into the world and then human beings kill him. And so human beings have like deep blood on our hands. You know, we've crucified God, basically. So he's crucified, suffers horribly. And in this story, God forsakes him somehow. And so there's, you know, you know, if we want to get into the, you know, theological debate here, you know, God had purposes in his death, but still like 
there was human activity in there somewhere. And then like his father turns his back on him of divine love. And if you're going to take it to the Trinitarian level, like there's like a oneness there that cutting off is like never been that way before. So there's this deep suffering that comes to God, right? And he dies. And then he resurrects, right? And so within that story, even if you're like not going to assume it's true for a moment, like even if we know we don't think that it's true at the moment, you can see in there the story of like, okay, there's deep evil and then God turns it to good and good for Jesus. There are uh, passages in Hebrews that says that Jesus endured the shame of the cross because he was looking to the joy that was set before him and that joy was us. So through his suffering, because of his suffering, you know, human people are able to be redeemed. And so like God, Christ gains the fellowship with humanity that he has been wanting. And it's because of the suffering that he endured. And without that suffering, he didn't get that good. So in reference to like, you know, the scriptural support for it, I think it kind of comes very subtly through the Pauline epistles. Like implied. Yeah, so it's it's implied. And then there's a couple of places where Paul kind of like draws it out even more that there is this good that comes to God, to Jesus, through his suffering. And then in that goodness, like not only is it good for Jesus, like this is the paradigm case, right? This is how we want it to turn out. It's not only good for the sufferer, but it like brings even more goodness and beauty and truth into the world. So I think that's one way you might be able to kind of look at, if you're looking at like the Christian worldview, if you're going to like dive into the deep end, that might be one way you could kind of extrapolate. All right, here's how the Christian theist might think about what God's morally sufficient reason would be. It's redeeming that evil for that person. Have we kind of uh, alluded to the content of your dissertation yet regarding his nature, God's nature? So there's a lot of uh, your dissertation kind of focuses on that aspect of the problem? It does. So I am looking at the view of, I'm trying to decide if I want to name drop at this point. Um, I'm looking at the view of Brian Davies. He is a Thomist philosopher who he's put forth this argument uh, that is, well, he says it's an interpretation of Aquinas and his and Aquinas' response to the problem of evil. And so Davies is just going to deny that God is a moral agent. So what that means is God is um, so, so far different than human persons. And so we've got to cash that out somehow. And part of how Davies thinks Aquinas cashes this out is that God is not a person. In the ethics literature, if you're a person, that means you're a moral agent. Jesus was a person for a while. Does that not count then? I'm not too sure what he would say there. I think, yeah, he'd probably have to write another book to kind of make sense of like, what what does that even, you know, look like? But I think he's like, barring the case of Christ. God is so far beyond, oh, so bar- different. Barring that one little asterisk, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Important detail, but we're just not going to think I about mean, isn't, that. I mean, isn't the... The whole crux of Christianity is based on God became human so that he, to empathize with us and take on our burdens and experience, like, doesn't that just erase, like, the whole gospel if you say, well, that doesn't count? It definitely complicates things, doesn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, Davies is going to, he's just going to say, like, look, God is, you know, he has a saity, which is just fancy terminology for God is greater or different than human creatures. And part of how that washes out is God is not subject to laws and rules and regulations like human persons, and that includes the moral ones. So, sorry. 
And so then I'm like, okay, you can do that and that's fine. But then I've got to ask you, where does human moral goodness come from? Because if it doesn't come, if God has no moral standards that don't, or if he has standards that don't look anything like mine, like is moral goodness independent of God? Then I got some deep questions about who's really greater. Is it God or is it the moral standard? And so like the questions that we've been raising, these are just standard ethical questions. And so then you start thinking, like this is where I get into like the more theoretical stuff. It's like, huh. So my position on God's being has implications for can I hold God responsible for evil's existence in the world? And so Davies just flat out denies like, look, if God's not a moral agent. I can't hold him responsible for doing X or not doing X, right? So obligations, they're like, okay, like if I'm obligated to do something, if I fail to carry it out, that's wrong. That's, you know, an obligation is like, you must do this thing. And, you know, if I think God must redeem every evil that happens, he's got to bring some sort of good out of it. I'm laying these kind of moral categories on God. And so all you have to do to get out of the problem is be like, moral categories don't deny or like they just don't apply to God. So then the problem just goes away. So it's a nifty answer to the problem of evil. But I don't think it's the strongest tool in the toolbox. What a nice way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. So that's what I'm working on in my dissertation. So I come at it from two angles. I address the ethical problem first because I think that's the more pressing one. It's like, all right, look, if you give up on like – God's having a certain kind of character that looks, you know, something like, okay, we can expect a certain kind of, you know, behavior from him. One of the things that Davies also denies is that uh, it's subtle, but it's present. So, you know, if God's changeless, Davies says that means he just does what he does and is what he is. And then it's like, okay, there's no content to that. And so then if like God makes me promises and I'm supposed to trust that he carries out his promises, like, look, if I don't know what kind of character you have and you say, I'm going to do X, like, that's nice. But I need something stronger, especially if I'm going to put the weight of like eternal life or eternal damnation on this person. So that's the very worrisome, I would think, especially mm. for a Christian theist. Yeah. Like, can I trust God? Can I not trust God? Yeah, I'm thinking about the quote from the Chronicles of Narnia where they're talking about Aslan and he says, is he safe? Uh, and he says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. But it sounds like Davies is saying, well, he's not safe or good. Oh, I didn't think about it like that. That's actually a really good way to put it. What kind of God is that? That's not a very good one. (laughs) Exactly. And it's like, it leads to this position about God's ethics that's like, God can do what he wants. And I would think like humanity should just cower in fear at that point. But it's also, I think, a view that's actually like, it's becoming a little more popular. So Davies is just one example of some... Christian philosophers who are holding this view. And it's interesting to me that I'm seeing Christian philosophers actually denying either God's moral goodness or God's moral goodness as we know it, and then trying to like reformulate what does God's moral goodness look like. So Davies tries a reformulation, and he says that God's goodness is expressed in, but not constituted by, his caring for the flourishing of the creatures. And if you're going to say that, I think you just get the problem of evil all over again. I mean, you don't even have to look at moral suffering to, you know, see or like moral badness to see that things just fail to flourish. We don't even have to do stuff to each other and stuff fails to flourish. So then problem of evil raises its head again, right? If I have X expectation of God, God's goodness looks like X, 
X does, is, does not exist or I have evidence that counts against X, God's existence becomes improbable all over again. So if the point of the theory or, you know, Davies, you know, exposition of Aquinas is to show, hey, I've got this really nifty answer to the problem of evil based on Aquinas, it doesn't work. It falls through. I just, um, again, we grew up, I think it's, I think they call it the Augustinian theodicy. Is that right? Kind of like, it's our bad, not God's bad. We chose to sin. Is that the right term? Um, That's in my head for some reason. I think it's something like that. I guess when I think Augustinian theodicy, he, so, you know, morally sufficient reasons are that God's permitting suffering is for the good of the sufferer, whereas Augustine doesn't make his theodicy that tight. He's just going to say, like, look, God redeems sufferings for, like, the global good. But I think this bit about, you know, it's on us and not on God, I think Augustine definitely buys that. Okay, because, yeah, that's, I feel like I've always, for good or ill, that's how I've always, um, that's the label I've attached to this idea here that I, that we grew up with, where the fall occurred, and that was a, some, some manner of conscious choice on our part, and all of the suffering and is a consequence of that all the way through to the today. And so in my mind, I mean, that's kind of like the standard biblical view, right? More or less. I mean, at least in terms of our upbringing. I, yeah. And, so, like and, and, so if, and if that's the case, if I'm correct about that being kind of the biblical view of how suffering entered the world in the first place, mm-hmm. then again, it's our, it's our fault. And that's what kind of makes the story of Jesus so special and impactful. It's like he came and did that despite our rejection of him because he loves us. So it's like, oh, well, isn't, wasn't that a nice gesture? And so I don't understand why the need for all of the ivory tower finagling by philosophers of religion about this problem. Like why it's as simple as what I just laid out. So why, why is that explanation insufficient such that all of these philosophers feel the need to offer all of these various explanations for the problem as if um, it, as if it's something that needs to be explained away because the the answer is hard baked into the the theology like it's a very basic whatever foundational element of christianity it, it, it prov- the bible itself provides an explanation for how evil and suffering enter the world and then the story goes from there, right? It's a good question. In terms of the, like, I don't know what the, like, ivory tower would say, like, why, you know, we feel we need to still talk about this. I think, I mean, there's more philosophers of religion besides Christian philosophers of religion. But then I'm wondering, I think the tools of philosophy maybe are helping us to think about, you know, we can talk about suffering in the abstract, in the general, right? And so I think... Christ's suffering gives us an answer to, all right, like the global suffering, like like we really messed up the world. And because of what Christ came and did, like, you know, we've got all the eschatological promises, right? God's going to come back and redeem the world. He's going to like deal with Satan and all of this stuff, right? So we get an answer to like the more global question. But then I'm wondering, and maybe this is like where the Romans 8.28 passage comes back in, you know, for those who love God, suffering is redeemed. 
there's still this kind of hanging question about, all right, well, what about my suffering? What about my story? How does my story connect into that global picture? And it seems like, all right, when Jesus comes and dies, you know, God so loved the world. That's true. But there's also true that like, all right, how do I get that from like all the way up here in this abstract, all right, God loves everyone to like, all right, this is my suffering. It's deep. It's hard. It hurts. And how does like, you know, if we have the global picture, how does my suffering fit into the global picture? Or asking it another way, does like God care that I am suffering? I think that's where the problem of evil gains traction, right? Is like it seems like, all right, if God's, you know, taking care of the world and I'm part of the world and like, you know, I'm looking at my suffering, maybe it doesn't look like it's redeemed or like how do I get the story of Christ's incarnation and death, burial and resurrection, how do I get that? into my story in such a way that it looks like my suffering, my pain, my lack, my loss, my insufficiency. How is it answered by that story? So yes, I think you're right that the Christian worldview has this resource in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But there is still a lot of like work and connection that we have to make to like get it to apply to like all the instances of suffering. Does that distinction make sense? Not to me. <laughs> so, okay. Let me, Keep maybe, probing. We'll maybe, get there. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe I can just ramble a bit and, and we can flush out what I'm trying to get For at For sure. Here. So, original sin occurs, mm-hmm. whatever that looked like, and the, the matrix of the reality that we as humans are embedded in is suddenly impregnated by, suffused with evil, and it spreads everywhere, and everything everywhere is affected by it because of our original act that broke the relationship and invited that into reality, right? Okay, so I guess maybe we can distinguish between, okay, I quote-unquote suffer when I lift a weight, but that's not like, okay, I experienced physical pain, mm-hmm. but it's not the kind of suffering we're getting at here. We're talking about, and I imagine that maybe Adam and Eve, maybe Adam is out there lifting like logs like Rocky, you know, on the shoulders through the snow, getting jacked, and uh, he's feeling the burn, but that's not the kind of suffering we're talking about. We're talking right. about watching your kid die of a brain cancer. We're talking about 100 uh, people drowning in a flood, you know, this kind of hard to parse out, hard to justify and explain, and that kind of suffering. Every conceivable instance whether you look at it from a sort of a more global meta perspective or even reduced down to the individual, even the most minute specific instance in the life of an individual person ultimately points back to that ground zero event. Mm -hmm. I'm not a believer, but even when I was, I never really, this was never a sticking point for me. Maybe that speaks to my charmed life or something. It's not like I didn't notice all the suffering going on around me and in my own life, but I saw that my worldview informed by my Christian worldview informed by the Bible provided a sufficient explanation as to what's going on here. I can certainly imagine someone, even with the same worldview that I had, experiencing such an acute example of suffering, whether that be involved with like a, a ch- the sickness of a child or a personal illness or whatever, um, such that like it's something so dramatic that would kind of rattle your cage a little bit and think, 
God, really? Like, I thought you loved me. And what, what's this all about? Like, how could you? But like I've, like I told you in our texting, it's like I, I see this as that's, that's an emotional reaction. But just because you're having an emotional reaction in an individual instance of suffering doesn't change the fact that original sin occurred and that that is the reason that you are having this experience right now. You might not like it, but the fact is that original sin occurred and you're all screwed because of it. But therein lies the beauty of, this, of what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't have to do that. And he came here and he's, and he, and he's ultimately providing a relief for humanity from all this suffering that we caused, you know. I'm aware of people like, not Davies in particular, but people like him and Plantinga and all these other people who offer all of these explanations as if they're wriggling under the weight of some problem that I simply don't see because the answer is right there. I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand what the hang-up is. Not to belittle you, all of your efforts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andy. <Yeah. laughs> so, but that's, so that's where my uh, confusion is coming from. Do you accept the premise of what he's saying, that original sin, you're all screwed, Jesus came to redeem it, so even though you're having one instance of very acute, miserable suffering, sorry, that's just part of the deal, you live here, that's going to happen to some people. I do. So I guess I'm I'm thinking now, I think that there is something to, I don't want to call it like a totally emotional reaction, but you know, if you... And, I think there is something within Christian theism that God, God's loving me, and whether this assumption is true or not, we can talk about this, there is kind of this like underlying assumption that like God's love, there's kind of this expectation that he's not going to let me suffer. So like if you look even at the Old Testament prophets, that's kind of the question they're asking, like, God, we're your chosen people. Like this nation has come in. They've like plundered and pillaged everything there is to be found. They've like burned all the sacred places. Like, come on, God, what's up? If we're your people, reality should not look like this. So I'm wondering if it's not just emotional. I think there's an emotional aspect to it. But I think there is this kind of expectation like, if God loves me, if God cares about me, if God, you know, cares about me enough to like send his son to redeem me from the effects of my own sin. And so maybe like the incarnation and the atonement is thought more so to rescue us from the consequences of our own personal choice to sin. So it's a rescue from damnation. So to those who believe, um, you are rescued from eternal separation from God. And so I think for most Christians, they're going to think about the atonement in that way. And so, yes, there's this, there's like, you know, multiple levels to it, right? If you're going to buy into the Christian worldview. So, yes, on one level, you know, Christ redeems me from my sin. So I get out from under those consequences or, you know, those consequences are no longer mine because they were placed on Christ. And... God is going to deal with the evil and suffering in the world. But then we've kind of got this hanging question about like, all right, hasn't happened yet in terms of like my timeline. So like, why is this evil in my life? Especially if you buy into the part of the Christian worldview that says God's large and in charge and he's sovereign. And so like, you know, if he's got a plan for my life, why does the plan involve suffering? You know, Job... I was just going to say, yeah. I feel like we need to talk I about mean, Job. Job even says God, you know, has slain him. 
And so there is this idea in scripture where, you know, we see like, it looks like God's wrecking lives. So, you know, by the things that he permits. So then how does that fit with God loves me? And so I think that's maybe why Christian philosophers of religion are still trying to wrestle with this idea, right? Especially if you take the incarnation atonement to be primarily something that rescues us from the moral consequences of our sin and not, and that this is part of it and not so like as much a part of like, all right, God's redeeming this world that's under the curse of sin. So we've left, we're left with this question in the here and now of like, how do I make sense of the distribution and the amounts and the kinds of evil? Because it seems like, all right, like if God is like after the redemption of this world, like after Jesus comes, why aren't we like slowing down the kinds of evils? Why do things, you know, you'll hear people talk about, you know, things are, you know, are worse than in my day, you know, in my day, and things are just, you know, getting progressively worse and worse. And so I'm wondering if this draw to using the philosophical resources is this worry about like, well, how do I make sense of like the suffering in my life or the kinds of evils that I see? So the cognitive dissonance is, yes, we've got this story of redemption, but like, world is not looking very redeemed right now. And so I need like some sort of like resource to, to say, all right, here's how we can make sense of it. Here's this kind of answer. Like here's how God's up to something in the world with the suffering and with the redemption. Does that clarify a little bit more, Andy? Uh, no, <laughs> not for <laughs> <That's> me. <okay. laughs> but I, I, uh, I mean like clarifies as in like, do you see more of what's going on? Like you don't have to agree with it, but like, I mean, it's not like I'm not following what you're saying. So I don't, maybe this is some some flaw on my part. Are you following, or do you have any inputs here? Yeah, I mean, I do. Yes, you are normally like an emotional idiot, but I do get... Uh, no no offense taken. <laughs> we all know it's true. I mean, I do. I do understand sort of what you're getting at, like... Yes, I hear everything that you've said, Emily, but it's kind of like, but, but it still comes back to, yeah, sorry, you're just part of the world. And some people, you know, some people roll the dice and they get a great life. Relatively in the in the scheme of the suffering lottery, we sort of hit the jackpot. We don't live in Ukraine right now, hmm. right? So I am actually sort of more on board with you, Andy, at this point. Like, yeah, I just don't see. I, I understand why people... Because people are emotional, have feelings, and of course, when suffering affects you, the simple explanation of, oh, well, Adam sinned, and so that's why my child is dying right now. Like, that's a horribly insufficient answer. Right, but God doesn't just care about suffering in the global. Like, he's intensely serious about the fact that he cares about you. Like, not just, you know, all right, I'm just part of this grand global story, and part of the explanation is that... I'm suffering in this way. I have some like terminal incurable illness, you know, and part in this explanation is just that, you know, sin entered the world. I think that on the Christian worldview, part of what you're buying into is not just that God loves the world in the abstract, but God loves you. Yeah, and part this, of yeah, this, this is something that's, that's repeated all the time yeah. from the pulpit it's in scripture you know god yes so right. there, there is it's a it's a fundamental aspect of christianity that god cares about you as an individual mm -hmm. and so it is a challenge 
in instances of of hard to bear suffering to square that claim about God's attitude towards me and the experience that I'm having right now. Mm-hmm. So it's perfectly understandable, but the people will be like, well, what the hell, man? Like, what I thought you love me, man. You know, mm-hmm. so what's the deal? Um, and so yeah, I, I can think- certainly see why people would be unsatisfied mm-hmm. with pointing back to Genesis and being like, well, you know, this, you know, the fall happened. Sorry, dude. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so hard about this question of love, right? Is love has got, it's, you know, we can understand what it is, so that's the intellectual part, but there's an affective part, right? It, it doesn't so, mean unconditional uh, displays of affection. Right. So it's complicated, right? Again, we've got the expectation, you know, we've got this rational, expect, uh, you know, expectation, right? If God's love means X, I should be seeing Y in my life. If God's love looks like, you know, he cares about my flourishing or he cares about the things that goes on in my life, and my life is a mess right now, it looks like, you know, God doesn't care, especially if you buy into, is God sovereign? You know, if God is sovereign and he's working everything out according to a plan, I mean, that's like one of the biggest claims, at least in like contemporary Christianity. And I think you do see it in scripture that, you know, God is working in the world in some way. And it seems like if he's sovereign over everything, he's sovereign over me, and he's sovereign over the things that he allows in my life. So yeah, there's, you know, that global explanation, but I think if you dig a little bit deeper and think about, all right, these questions of like, well, why this amount of suffering? Why like this? And so maybe the more interesting problem of evil questions for you might be the ones that are like, God knows everything. He knew before he created Adam that sin was going to happen. And so God's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's all loving. Why why create Adam if he's going to like bring evil into the world? So that might be like something that maybe more captures your attention, right? Because it's pre-Adamic fall, right? And so, I mean, there are some ways, I mean, Plantinga talks about, uh, again, you lose the great good of free will, but then we might be like, why is free will so awesome if it brings, you know, such suffering into the world, right? That, I feel like, opens up a whole can of philosophical worms worms about um, thinking about God in terms of our spatiotemporal limitations and thinking, you know, what does it mean for God to have known that it was going to happen ahead of time? Mm -hmm. We're trying to wrap our minds around the con around the thinking and intention of a being that is so wholly other. Is there a significant Calvinist-Arminian split on how they deal with this problem? I don't think it would be Calvinist-Arminian. It would be to what extent do human beings have you know, free will? And so that does come into play. So if you don't think human beings have free will, you're not going to really buy Plantinga's defense, right? Because it's you don't have this libertarian, I can choose to do otherwise than I did kind of free will, right? Right. You, I would think for a Calvinist, it would be like, you got cancer. Sorry, vessels of wrath. Yeah, that- some, some kind of level of like, that was just part of the plan. Right, God is glorified through your cancer, and there's no redemption for you, but it brings him more glory somehow, mm-hmm. which is pretty freaking sick to me. See, I well, think that's <laughs> where the problem of evil rises, and I think that's what I'm trying to put my finger on, is like, I think part of what the the pull with the problem of evil, even though we have this answer in Christ, is like, it seems like God doesn't care about me if I'm just a pawn in the game. And it's like the problem of evil is a way of working out like the resources of the, you know, philosophical literature is a way of working out how am I not a pawn in the game? Do do you think that maybe my, the reaction and view that I was expressing before 
is informed. Maybe one of the reasons for my kind of like struggling to understand what's going on here, a, a function maybe of the fact that we grew up Protestant, Arminian, you know, there, was, there wasn't a, a hint of, of Calvinism in our upbringing. It might be. It makes it a little bit easier to buy the whole like, well, Adam had free will and yeah. he like used it and he botched it, it for it us all. Easier. Yeah, it, it kind of ties the the knot or whatever kind of nicely. I feel like, but yeah. I, but I can see though from a Calvinist perspective that complicates this quite a bit. I would actually think on the Arminian view because you're more libertarian about free will, you'd have this you might think, be more of a question you th- for you. You think it way. complicates it for a Calvinist because then the Calvinist has to explain. The Arminian says, free will, Adam, Adam ushered sin in. Yeah, That's why everything's it may, broken. It, 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 may, it paints a picture of a conscious failure. It's our something. responsibility. Yes. But for a Calvinist, they basically have to explain why God made everything exactly yeah. how he wanted it, so he seems to have made the world yeah, so if, to be part of if evil. If there was suffering. no free will in place in the act that generated the fall, the outcomes mm-hmm. resulting from the fall, then what do you do with God at that point? That that right. makes him seem like kind of a monster. So you're looking for a justification for God's behavior, yes. right? And then that's going to throw you into like, well, what's the morally sufficient justification for okay. for God permitting suffering well, in that's the world? A, our, our, I know the planting is, has, a, has a Calvinist bent. Is that the place, is that the I case with people like babies? So. Davies, uh, he's trying to be Thomistic, so I think he would reject the Calvinist picture because Aquinas, while your will is not unbridled, it's like you have like a genuine, I can choose to do otherwise than I did kind of choice. Are there any philosophers who, if we go back to the original presuppositions, God is all-powerful, he's good, he's all-knowing, and there's evil in the world, are there any who basically say he's not good, not even the Davies that he's morally different, just like, yeah, he might just be a vindictive, monstrous asshole, and we just have to deal with it. Like, is there anybody who goes to that degree? (laughs) As far as I know, no. Typically what's going on is, you know, kind of trying to rewrite, like, God has his own ethics, or... Kind of like the God as portrayed in Job. Um, yeah, maybe like like a deeply... Who are you to to question me and my my methods here. Kind of Maybe, thing. yeah, but like coming at it from like, you know, the human voice, right, is like, you know, God does his own thing and who are we to like, you know, say, you know, otherwise than what we did. Although I think it's interesting, I was able to take a class on like suffering and we looked at just different interpretations of the book of Job and I think it's actually interesting. It's tempting to look at that book and be like, well, God just kind of did whatever he did to Job. But Job actually gets what he wants from God at the end. He says, I want to bring my case before you. And God comes and, like, listens to him. And I crushes mean, his family in the process. I yeah, it kind of sucks it. to be Job's kids and wife and cattle and sheep. Yeah. And not Yeah, we, I mean. Of course, I, I assume none of us, we're not all here taking that book as literal history, right? Um, I'm still, jury's out on that okay. one for me. all right. Even if you don't want to take it literally. So let's say it is just a parable. As far as I understand parabolistic interpretations of the book of Job, it's still telling us something that's true about God, even if the story itself is not meant to be taken literally. So there's a moral we're supposed to be taking from Job. I mean, there's even some interpretations of the book that it's like layers of myth and fact, and it's really interesting to think about. But I think however you're going to take it, 
it is interesting that in some way, even if you buy this like God does whatever he does kind of approach, God listens to Job. He's listening to the friends too. And I think it's interesting he gets his audience with God. He gets his day in court. God comes and is like, do you care for the Leviathan? And can you keep him under control? And so all these appeals to like, can you do the same things that I do and run the world like I do? Um, so again, it's like not seemingly not directly answering the question, but there's still this sense in which like, huh, this is, book is just, it's puzzling. But in at some level, God cared enough about Job to like give him what he wanted. I mean, even after he took, you know, kids, cattle, servants, everything else. Yeah, I've never heard that uh, approach to the book before, because usually the, the stage is set when you're discussing Job by God placing bets with Satan. Yes, right? yes. So hence, the pe- people like to look at that book and say, if that's the way things are, then he's kind of a prick. Okay, so I watched a debate, it wasn't really a debate, between Stump and this guy Hardwick, I, I just took some notes and got a couple quotes from things that she said and he said, so I'm just going to propose these to you, curious to get your responses to them. Sure. Because you're the resident stump <laughs> expert. Okay, so at one point, she is talking about how those who are suffering are nearer to God. In The Problem of Evil, there's this analogy of life, the lottery of life. Some people win the lottery. You know, Andy and I won the lottery if you're living in Ukraine right now, you did, you know you did not win the life lottery, right? And she sort of flips it and is basically saying, no, those who are suffering, they're the ones who actually won the lottery because there's some, they're nearer to God, they have a closer connection with God. There's some sort of special grace, or I'm, she didn't use that phrase, but something like that, right? So, is she speaking specifically about Christians? Or does that apply to non-believers? And if so, where does that come into the non-believer has a special relationship with God, but they still get smoted if they don't believe in Jesus? Talk me through that. Mm, maybe we need to go back and think a little more clearly about the nature of Christianity. Because as I understand it, Christian faith is not essentially intellectual. And what I mean by that is it's not just intellectual assent. So you have to get intellect and will to line up. So it's necessary for you to have this like intellectual, like here are things that you know about Christ. And there's debate as to like, all right, how specific do we have to get? You know, if someone is a believer, like at what point, you know, is that intellectual knowledge enough to push them into faith? Is this like faith without works is dead, this sort of thing? Kind of, but the effective part that I'm thinking about is there's kind of like... um, a love or a turning toward the good. So I could know a whole bunch of facts about Christianity, about the resurrection, but I could still be like, nope, don't love God, don't love anything that he loves. I don't think it's worth it to be morally good, right? So you've got the intellective part, and then there's the affective part. You've got to love the things that God loves as well. And so that's kind of the nature of union and relationship, right? Is like, how can I be in relationship with someone if I don't care about the things that they care about, if I don't love the things that they love, or at least like love the things that they love for their sake, right? So there's something similar to that going on in Christianity. Now, I say that because I want to kind of deal with this, like 
this union with God that might potentially be possible for un, you know an unbeliever. So as far as I understand Dr. Stump's work, especially in Wandering in Darkness, she does seem to briefly hint at there is a sense in which suffering can lead us closer to the goodness that is God, even though we don't recognize God as the Christian God. There seems to be a sense in which even um, even if that person never comes to faith in Christianity or faith in Christ, their life is better off for being nearer to the objective good. So there is a sense in which I'm I'm not sure if we could call it union, like the robust union required for you know eternal life. There's a sense in which that person can be closer to God than they were before. Or than they, you know, they're closer to God than they would have otherwise been if their lives were free of that suffering. But ultimately, does she believe in a literal hell, or do you know what her what her beliefs are on that? I mean, that sounds nice, but it's like, well, but ultimately, they're still going to get smoted, right? Or there some level of annihilationism or possibly conscious eternal torment. Yeah, I'm not too entirely sure what her views are on that. But there would be views where, you know, that person, they got closer to God, but it was not enough um, to where their will was turned toward the good in the way that is, you know, required for union with God. So I think if you are going to engage, especially with, you know, Stump's work, and I think this is generally what's thought to be accurate or true of the description of union with God, you have to have some kind of element of turning towards the good. So being sent to damnation, whatever that turns out to be, is not so much, well, you didn't like check off, you know, the list of things you were supposed to believe, but it's like, did you truly love the good? And so the the reason that I say that is, is that there are views of hell where people who do not explicitly believe, or we should say maybe views of heaven, um, where people who do not explicitly believe in Christ are there because they had a kind of love for the good. Or even if you want to take a look at, you know, Dante's Inferno, there's this place right before, you know, you go into like the actual place that we would think about as hell where like virtuous pagans are, right? And so it seems like there's a sense in which someone can not know about the Christian God, but yet they're drawn closer to the kind of goodness that makes up or constitutes or how do I want to say this correctly? They're closer to the goodness that God is. So this would be like good Muslims or Aborigines who have never heard about Christ? Something like that. It's not necessarily a view I ascribe to. I think there are a couple of other ways that you could cash out what something like that might look like. So you might have someone who has sought the good their entire life, and then you know when it comes time to die, you know, if you're going to buy into a very literalist reading of scripture, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. And so there might be this kind of intermediate state between like when it, you know, we have physical death and then that eternal state where someone is offered the opportunity in Christ, they recognize that the goodness they've been looking for is in Christ and they kind of have that moment of repentance, even though it's not something that we could recognize after physical after death. A physical death. So it's like you get a second chance, kind of. Kind of, but it's like it's situated in such a way, the timing, that it's like, all right, you've only died, you know, once, and then you get like this 
kind of like it's described in terms of like a life review and then you have the the offer to accept Christ. So they there used, they use some kind of a scripture to justify that? I don't think there is as far as I, like I'm remembering from these view there's like not explicit scriptural support. That's wishful thinking. For that. So <laughs> I mean that'd be great if that was the case. We know someone or we don't even have to say that much. I've heard of this one view where people if say a father for example is a believer and is saved, then that forgiveness gets applied to his children also. Like it gets passed yeah, on. Yeah, I've heard variations of that view. I'm not really sure. There's this strange, not strange verse, but there is a verse that talks about, it's typically like not for fathers, but it's for mothers. So women will be redeemed from some of these like more general effects of the curse on women by they're redeemed through childbirth and part of what that's taken to mean is like if you are godly you have children um, there's something about your faith that's like passed on to them or there's something like that so i'm wondering if it's like a variant of that view i don't know if that hey if the if original sin can get passed on in the genetics then i don't see why salvation shouldn't be able to get passed on in the genetics that seems fair what do you think hmm, i never <laughs> thought about it like that <laughs> Okay, so next stump question. Okay. I'm going to read you this quote. She's talking about suffering and people who cause suffering in the world. Mm. Okay. This view, this attitude towards suffering, should be no consolation for people who cause such suffering or whose indifference contributes to it or people who fail to remedy it when they can readily do so. Those people are execrable... I think that's the right word. It's like really bad. Those people are really bad in their conduct. Does that sound like a word that Stump would use? Yes. Execrable. Something like excrement, kind of? I, yeah, they're, that's probably... Basically, they're being shitty. Yeah, there you go. She should have just said that. <laughs> they're being very bad, very shitty in their conduct, and nothing about this positive attitude towards suffering alters that evaluation of them. The positive attitude being sort of what we talked about before, of like having... You're actually winning the lottery. You're closer to God. There's there's something redemptive about the okay, suffering. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, what, what does this view refer to? Okay, yeah. good. Okay, so my question is, so she's basically saying that doesn't take away from if you if you cause suffering or if you're able to alleviate suffering. You you're shouldn't so just, bad you, you for You shouldn't just do nothing suffering. about suffering because there's something redemptive about it. Okay, so my question is, why does that not apply to God? He has the power and can easily remedy the suffering, but he does not. So is he not execrable? <laughs> He's not because he has morally sufficient reasons. This is Stump's view, but it's also the one that I've adopted as well. The reason that that does not apply to God is God has morally sufficient reasons. So you can take the resources of the triad and see how this works, right? God's all-powerful and God's all-knowing. And if that's true, he knows all of the interconnections in the world. How does this suffering um, connect to that good? But he also knows the psychology of each person's suffering. So he would know and know just enough how much suffering to permit into that person's life. He has a very high vantage point. And we right. have a very low, we're just, we're on the ground, but he's up high and he can see the whole picture. So he can see not just the whole picture, but like the interconnections, right? The, just the entire inner working. So like thinking about the difference between looking at a painting up close and then stepping back and then looking at it from the big vantage point. And God's got the nuances of both the big vantage point 
and the little vantage point. So the reason that, you know, God doesn't fall under that same evaluation, it's not so much that like God gets a free pass, but because God has more power, God has more knowledge. He's kind of like, okay, think about it like this. If I were to walk into VJC hospital right now and pick up operating instruments and say, all right, I'm going to go and like perform this operation because it's like, gonna stop the suffering of this person you'd be like what's wrong with you you can't do that you don't have the knowledge the skill set the licensure to do this this makes you an evil person because you don't you can't do this like you're gonna cause more suffering than you're gonna relieve any kind of benefit but if you have the surgeon walk into the OR that person, because they have the skill set to know where to make the cuts, how to deliver the anesthesia, just enough, you think about it, like they do cause pain in some way. Recovery is hard. It's pretty awful. It's nasty. But because they know how to wield their power and their knowledge for the good of the patient, we think that they are able or allowed to, they have good reason for causing that kind of suffering. And in fact, We might think that if the surgeon failed to operate, even if they were causing pain, because of the benefit that they actually take away from the patient, we might actually think that they were morally reprehensible. They're like that excoriable person because they don't exercise their powers for the good of the sufferer. So then, but what about the Bambi problem? Or if we take Bambi and we replace... Bambi with a hiker in the woods who dies in a freak forest fire accident or something. Seemingly, there's no redemptive, you know, there's not some greater, oh, well, this suffering connects to that suffering and this thing gets redeemed because this person, it seems like there's a, there's no connection. It just stops like needless suffering for no redemptive good purpose or greater, doesn't contribute to the greater good in any way. Mm-hmm. Is there any reasonable explanation for that on that worldview besides, I don't know, but he must have something in mind? So my initial response would be, yes, God can see more than you. So he's got the, the, the grand picture in mind. He can see those interconnections. Now, at first glance, that seems unsatisfactory. And there has been some philosophical discussion of where it sounds like, it does sound like, all right, we're left in this kind of agnosticism, right, about God's morally sufficient reasons. And it seems like we need to say more. However, there's a sense in which if we take God to be omniscient, and I'm not, if I take God to be all-powerful, and I'm not, it might just be the case that it is true, that at least for some of the evils that exist in the world, I'm not going to see how some good connects to some evil. But God is able to see all of those interconnections. And that's because I've claimed that he is omniscient. And so that might still sound somewhat unsatisfactory because it still sounds like, you know, God's got the big picture and I just can't see all the finer details. But if I take seriously the idea that God's omniscient and I'm not, if I take seriously my epistemic position, my position in relation to the evidence is that, yeah, I'm going to miss stuff because I don't, I'm limited in time and space and God's not limited in time and space. You know, if I take seriously those things, then yeah, it might be the case that God does see those interconnections 
And he is still, to put it just common vernacular, he's still working the plan, but it's just I'm failing to see how the pieces all fit together. Yeah, if you're going to hold that position, what other option do you have than to just throw up your hands and say, I don't know, but I'm sure he's got it under control. I mean, at a certain point, you have to just fall back on the presuppositions. and Right. But I do want to be careful. And this is a, a question for someone who does like metaphysics. So part of what I study is also like the nature of reality. And one of the things that can be worrisome about thinking about metaphysics is that it seems like there's no arguments for some of like the theoretical positions we take. And that feels scary, right? It's like if I'm going to hold a position, I want to be able to like, you know, give a good argument for this or be able to offer, you know, independent evidence. But that doesn't necessarily leave us in a place where we don't have good reasons for holding to one theory as opposed to another. So think about it like this, you know, and scientists do this all the time, right? They formulate hypotheses and then they test them and they're going to adhere to the theory that best explains the phenomena. So when you're thinking about like the comparison of worldviews, you want to think about, all right, given the phenomena, the things that I see, the things that I know to be true about the world, which worldview seems to square with what I know to be true about human beings? What do I know to be true about the nature of reality? And I think especially when you're thinking about religious worldviews, you'll probably be looking more at like, all right, what's the nature of human persons? What are my intuitions about what God is supposed to be like or what God should be like? And again, like you might have a defeasible worldview. Like there could be evidence that comes up later that's like, hey, you know, I thought this worldview best explained the evidence. And then like a scientist, you know, if I see that I've got a new piece of evidence that comes to light, I've got to chuck the old theory. That falsifiable and defeasible, are those are these synonyms? Yeah, something okay. like that. So like defeasibility is just the idea that like, so think about, all right, I'm looking at this wall. The wall is green. That belief, even though it's justified based on like the use of my sens- you know, sensory apparatus here, it's defeasible, right? There could be like, oh, maybe TJ had like some sort of like light cover over the light and, you know, the wall's actually like yellow and the light was covered with like a blue sheen or something. But I think the point that I'm trying to make is that in terms of comparing worldviews, the way that you can do that instead of feeling like you're just stuck at like axiomatic crossroads is seeing how do the pieces of the theory explain the worldview and which does the best job of explaining the reality that you inhabit. So that's kind of one way of thinking about the job that a worldview is supposed to do. So, I mean, I, I guess with, I think that's one of the worries of that res- particular response of like, if I'm going to say, well, God has a different vantage point than I do, how do you say that without coming to some kind of agnosticism about God's reasons? And I mean, you do see some support for that in scripture. My ways are higher than your ways. But the context of the, <laughs> that verse actually has to do with the nature of God's love for the children of Israel. So it actually doesn't have much to do, doesn't have anything to do with like saying something that like God can just has his own ethics. It has to do with like the depth and the richness of God's love for Israel. So again, you have to be careful what kinds of evidence you applying that verse yeah, like how when you're, it really just applies in one Yeah, it applies to the context of, you know, God's love for Israel is not like human love in the sense that it's not fickle. So that's actually the context 
of that verse. Because as far as I've heard it, some people will kind of apply that, like we can't understand God's ways. They'll go to that verse, and then I was very, I'm probably not disappointed is the right word, probably glad <laughs> to find that the evidence for for this particular scriptural claim is not that like God just does whatever he does and you know that's all we can say it's like no I heard that so many times growing up yeah it's about my love is something that's stable it's firm so there's like content to it it's not about God doing willy-nilly okay let me see did you just near to God what is this here you you came up with like a list of questions yeah just some notes I took from that stump debate she talks about the disability movement. There's some kind of a special glory proposed by those in the disability rights movement. Okay, so what she's trying to say here is that people that are in the disability rights movement, they don't just say that we should be recognized, we should have rights, we have worth. They actually say there's some, there's sort of a, I have it in quotes here, special glory. So it's like they're bringing something actually important and unique through their disability. I guess the thing that I don't necessarily agree with that or that doesn't make sense to me is that we only say that because we don't have the magic make all the disabilities go away button. Because it's a fact that exists in the world, then yes, maybe there's something it can teach us about or there's lessons to be learned. But I got to think that whatever, if you could give that button to all of those disabled people, 99.999% of them would push the, I'd like to have legs again, please, button. So it goes back to this idea of God has the button. He could push the button to make all the things go away. And then we, I mean, this, it's, we just go in circles again. Well, there's the free will. If he did that, it would violate the free will, blah, blah, blah. But I just, personally, I don't find the, it would violate everyone's free will argument. Is there something like, I don't know. I'm thinking of, for example, the situation in Ukraine, whatever. Yeah. When, when circumstances are idyllic, it's kind of hard for things like heroism and virtue to, there's, it's not, a, it's not a, an environment where those things can sort of blossom and express themselves and really come into their full fullness, whatever. It's, it's like the reason why this white trim looks good on these walls is because the walls are dark gray. It's like there's a, it's in, in the, in an environment of, suffering, virtue, and faith, positive attributes associated with Christian belief have an opportunity to come in, come to fruition, something like that. Right, but those things are only necessary because there's suffering and evil and... if Okay, if you could have two worlds. One is, there's a world where there's suffering and death and evil, but that produces heroism and virtue and faith and these good things. Or you can have a world where... You don't have the death and the suffering, which then doesn't necessitate the heroism and the virtue. And w- which world would you pick? So I would think you'd want to pick the world without the suffering and the death. I mean, basically, isn't that just heaven? So does that mean there's no virtue and heroism and What faith if the and- virtues look different? Maybe not that there would be analogs, but there is this place in 1 Corinthians 13 where it talks about... Um, now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so the thought is, faith is eventually going to go away, right? Because it's going to become sight. Hope is going to go away because, you know, if you get what you hope for, you're not hoping for it anymore. But it seems like charity or love is the thing that would abide. But faith and hope are still virtues. So maybe there's a sense in which, like, 
we could still be actively expressing a certain kind of virtue. I mean, we're going to at least minimally love God in heaven. I would think other people too. So you're exercising at least some, some virtue. But it is, I think, a relevant question. Like, would the the virtues look different if there were not suffering? And then if you say something like that, probably Hicks' defense would fall apart. Because it relies on this idea that, like, to to bring virtue to, like, humans who are not fully developed, God had to, like, apply pressure on the piano keys, right? So, like, the way you tune a piano is you put the pressure on the, the keys and you, as you tune it. So God's got to do something like that analogously to human persons. And so suffering is the means by which God fully, I guess, makes us who we're supposed to be. Mm, yeah, I don't like that. Not that I don't like the argument, I just, that's I mean, deeply unsatisfying that, like, to me. I mean, the Christian worldview is true, you don't want something that makes the goodness of a world dependent upon evil in some way. Something about that seems, maybe not lacking, but there's a sense in which, like, well, if God needed evil to develop this world, or, you know, was it truly fully good in the garden, as good as God said, you know, why did he need, why does God need evil to make us who we are? So I'm more inclined to think that something, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the fall. You know, the need for these kinds of virtues, like our, you know, not attaining who we're supposed to fully be as human persons, like all of this stuff I think is wrapped up in there. Not just the moral wrong, but like, man, we did not live up to who we were supposed to be. And then now it's like, you know, our posterity also gets to live that way too. So I think you do, I am a little uncomfortable at least, placing too much weight on this idea that like God needs evil to like make us who we are. And that's what Hicks says? Well, I mean, if human beings, like, you know, we come into the world not fully formed, you know, we need the pressure to become virtuous. We need the pressure to become heroic, to become brave, courageous, patient, all that kind of stuff. And all of those, notice that patience requires difficult situation or someone is annoying you or like something that entails a kind of suffering, right? So if you could have things like patience, bravery, all those other things without like the the evil or the suffering, then like those virtues aren't conditional on their being evil. And, but he says they are they are conditional. Yes, or you need you need suffering in order for human beings to develop them and manifest them. That just seems like a failure of imagination like God couldn't have just made up a new way to have bravery and virtue without suffering. I mean, suffering given and those death. those kinds of virtues and what we understand them to be. I think there's something to the fact that suffering causes them at least to emerge. Anything else on the record, or have we, <laughs> have we run our course? Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed our pleasure. conversation. Glad you came out. Me too.